Hey everybody, I'm Anna McEwen. And now for Bob Switzer with the epic narrative. Well, we <laughs> well, 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 well. Welcome to the epic narrative. Uh, we're we're going to embark on probably a couple ep- episodes around the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Two of the main cities that were, uh, you know, that we've met before, uh, with Abram rescuing Lot and the king of Sodom wanting to honor Abram, and then the influence that they gave to Lot and Lot. Even before that, when Lot chose that plain, tro- chose that very fertile uh, valley in which to go live, instead of, uh, you know, staying closer to his uncle who was also very wealthy, and they weren't getting along. So, anyways, he left his uncle, left, left. Remember, when he left Abram, he also left the teachings of Abram. That whole idea of that he parted ways was he chose a different path spiritually, not just a different path to go feed his sheep and all the other animals he had. So I do think that that the story of Sodom and Gomorrah needs to be broken down because we need to stop <laughs> with the generalization of what the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is was and who is the one who brought destruction as as it will be no surprise to you if you listen at all i don't think god brought destruction on sodom and gomorrah and i think the evidence is there if you take the time to look at it and you come at it with that kind of mindset that says god is like Jesus. Jesus is like god. God didn't wipe out entire cities because of sin. So god doesn't either. And, and God did, uh, Jesus didn't kill anyone, let alone entire cities. So I've gone into that before, and if you've listened along the way, you know that this is, this is the approach that we take on the Epic Narrative podcast. So this is not going to surprise you, but I do want to spend the time, because for some of us, uh, some of you, you may need to break this down a little bit so that you can start processing it differently, because it's hard uh, to do you know, when you're living life. And this podcast hopefully will give you an opportunity to kind of go along with the narrative and pick up a, enough information that that allows you some direction when you want to go into your own personal study on it. And possibly, possibly take this uh, podcast's viewpoint and at the very least put it on the what if shelf. What if what Bob says is right? What if we've been... We've been given one main story on this on Sodom and Gomorrah because, generally speaking, people are trying to manipulate our behavior. And and if you don't break down the story into pieces, you kind of can do that. You can just say, "Look, it. They were a sinful city, and the angel showed up, and and everybody died except for Lot. And then his wife was a horrible person who turned around and turned into a pillar of salt. And boom! Don't ever turn your back. You know, when God, when you're when you're running." From sin, don't turn your back or you turn into a pillar of salt. Don't live in a city of sin or you may be crushed along with those who are crushed by God. Like there's all kinds of, of <laughs> all kinds of great preaching that comes out of these chapters. But we're just going to tell a great story. I think anyways, it's a great story. So when we last left, Sarah had got heard the word of the Lord. And this is, this is a capitalized uh, word. So one of these one of these uh, people that showed up at Abraham's, Abraham's house was the Lord, and the other two were angels. And you'll see that the that at the end of this little episode here that we'll be finishing, uh, it's the Lord who stops and talks with Abraham, and the two angels continue walking. So they just that they, they just kind of go. So in verse 16 of Genesis 18. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Again, this is just uh, just a beautiful picture of hospitality. This is what hospitable hospitality looks like. You don't just you don't just send your guests away from the table and and remain seated there. Like, hey, have a great day. See you guys. It is far more uh, hospitable to walk with them, and this is very true. 
even today in the Middle Eastern countries and in some of the Asian countries are the, is the same thing. This idea that if you if a guest you know comes in, you receive them, you feed them, you clothe them, you provide for them whatever they need in that in that time, and then when they leave, you walk with them for a ways, whatever that means, down the stairs, out the door, you know, down the sidewalk a little bit, or out to their car, make sure they get in, wave, you know, wave goodbye. There's there's lots of ways that you can show hospitality. That's very similar to the way that we're seeing it here. He walked with them because that's the honorable thing to do. Now remember, Abraham was Abraham was was in a level of pain. At, uh, <clears throat> I'm guessing as he moved around, some of that pain just subsided, or maybe it got worse. I don't know. But he stood on the sidelines while these guys ate, even though technically they didn't need to eat. He served them the food and the drink and the and the curds of milk and the bread that Sarah had made because she was a good bread maker. And he's walking with them, and the Lord the Lord asks a, a question. He'd be probably looking at the angels. And he asks a rhetorical question. Uh, basically, well, here it says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? But the question is more along the lines of, there's, there's nothing that keeps me from, from sharing with Abraham what I'm going to do. I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to hide anything I'm about to do. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. This is awesome, right? This is the Lord's confidence in the Lord's promise. (laughs) Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. He's reminding us of all the possibilities of the covenant, and he continues. Uh, in verse 19, for I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household effort after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised for Abraham. Now, I find that that phrasing interesting. I just want to point it out, not, not to belabor the point too much, but there's a choice here, right? The Lord has given a promise. The Lord is very confident in his promise because he knows all the choices that anybody could ever make. And as long as, you know, they make the ones that generally they're probably going to make, he understands the probability of this promise coming true is pretty high. But he does leave room for Abraham and his descendants to make a choice. He says, uh, uh, for I've chosen him so that, so that he will direct his children and his household after him, so the next generation's, to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. The Lord's like, my confidence is in my goodness. My confidence is in the results of your choices, you reaping what you sow. If one generation leads the next generation into the being, what does he call it? Uh, right and just. And that's not that's not perfection. Okay, that's not that's not sinlessness. He's saying, if you make the choices to love other people, to bring peace, to bring hope, if you are hospitable and kind and gentle, if you uh, make deals that aren't deceptive and and uh, selfish and prideful and arrogant, these are the things of heaven. He's like, basically, if you go along with the identity that I gave you from the beginning, from the beginning, if you work your identity from the from the way I created you, then what I promised you is going to come about. This was not, this is, you know, uh, again, I, I harp on this, on this sovereignty thing because I do think it's another perception of God's sovereignty that we often um, get misaligned and that we think his sovereignty is at some level puppets. And I, I know people that have done what I would call academic gymnastics on this, right? They say, well, you can do whatever you want to a point, and then periodically God steps in and makes something happen. And I, honestly, these are brilliant, amazing uh, men of God who have huge followings, large podcasts, multiple books written. Like, I, I know who I'm disagreeing with. Is it's you know one they would never know who know who I am because they're <laughs> uh, they're too big to care about Bob and his basement. 
you know, with with a little podcast, uh, you know, with his Chromebook and a microphone. Like this is not, <laughs> I am not going to be somebody that that these guys come after. But I do know who I'm who I'm up against is not against is a bad word. Who I disagree with. And and if we were ever in the same room and they ever cared to know, uh, I would stand by what I have to say because I really believe this. I believe it to my core that God does not periodically step in and force people to do stuff in order to in order to bring about the promises that he promised. And this is one of those places, like if 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 I gave you the name of the person that I disagree with uh, on this point, and again, they're brilliant people and I love them and they are going to be in heaven and I have read literally all their books. I love, I love them. But if we were in the same room, we were talking about this, I would, I would, you know, I would be like, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know. Like, how does that, how does that really fit? If the character of God is mirrored in Jesus and Jesus didn't manipulate circumstances in order to bring about, quote, the will of God, like how, how does it fit here? And they're basically like, well, because God needed certain things to occur. And this is one of them. He needed Abraham to fulfill the, you know, fulfill his promise so that the promises of, you know, through Abraham could, could come true so that all the, all the nations of the earth could be blessed, which of course they believe is Jesus. And I do too. So they were like, this thing had to happen. God had to step in and make this part happen. I see an opportunity for choice here. I see an opportunity for the the possibilities that if Abram or some realm of his generations after him choose not to do what is right and just, then the promises of God that were given to Abraham could be derailed. And I think that's fine. I don't think God's out of options. That's that's the other thing, right? This this whole idea of sovereignty if God doesn't make it happen, then what? Then what? All of a sudden, the whole the whole plan gets exploded. Listen, the plan was that we never left the garden. That was the plan, and the plan is we all get back to that state again. That we behave that way in you know staying in frequent, getting into the frequency of of our Creator God and working with it, and recreating heaven on earth the way Adam and Eve were designed. What you know what they were assigned to do. Anyways, enough about that, Bob. Just wanted to take a moment. <laughs> yes, Bob's like, you had your moment. Now move on. Thank you so much. Uh, where am I? All right. So the Lord then says, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. And if not, I'll know. Then the men... Angels turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. So only two of these guys actually go to Sodom. The Lord remains here. This is amazing, right? He says, uh, he brings Abraham into the discussion. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm, this is what I'm going to do. The sin, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the city. The sin of the city and the coming results is getting so loud that God's like, I need to go down there and see if there's a way for me to rescue these people. And Abraham listens to the plan as, a, as the angels walk away and he says, all right, uh, let me ask this. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Now, Abraham's approaching God as though God is doing this. But it's clear through the discussion that Abraham has that that is not what God's plan was. And I'm guessing it's not the way, it's not the way Abraham was asking the question. He doesn't, he's not asking this question to God as if God is doing this. He's asking the question to God as if, is this, is this what's going to happen? The good and the bad are going down at the same time. Now, Abraham, this is what I know. Abraham would not ask this question if God's will and character was to destroy sin and to kill people. Follow me on this, people. So many times, especially we in the Western church, 
we read this we read this verse and we think you know will you sweep away the righteous with the with the wicked and we think see god's going to do this no abraham wouldn't ask the question if he didn't already know that god's character is not to see the wicked and the righteous destroyed the only thing that makes this question possible is if god's goodness can stop the results of sin if god's goodness can can provide a way out of sin. Listen, who was discipled by Noah for 40 years? Abraham was. If anybody knows that a rescue plan can come forth from God when all, all, you know, hell is breaking loose in a particular place, literally breaking loose and killing people, it would be Noah. Noah taught Abraham, listen, God loves to rescue people. That's the character of our God. That's the character of our creator because he knows and sees people in their true identity in the way that he crafted them, formed them, created them from this thing called the beginning. And as people came out of the beginning, he he never he never sees them any other way. He wants he wants them to behave and interact with their true identity. So here is Abraham asking the question based on that character. He's not asking the question because he's, he figures this is inevitable. He wouldn't ask the question if it was inevitable. He would have clearly just said, wow, Lot, Lot is going to be in a, a heap big of trouble. I sure hope he gets, he gets an opportunity to run. No. He knows the answer to the question. Will you sweep away the righteous with the, with the wicked? He's like, absolutely not. All right, now comes uh, a very revealing conversation. It reveals God's heart to save. God loves to rescue. He loves a good rescue. He, this is his, he knows people get caught up in sin. He knows that they, they get deceived into sinning. He knows that even people without a sin nature get deceived into sinning. He understands the ways of the enemy. And and his heart is, my goodness is always available. My rescue is always available. You may be in the throes of the results of your sin, but if you look, I am there. He's not afraid of sin. He's not offended by sin. He does not turn his back on sin or sinners. He sits right there and says, I'm available. And in, in, in his, uh, I was going to say, just repent. I mean, it was the option he gave Adam and Eve, right? We never see Adam repenting. We never see Cain repenting. And yet God still displays his goodness by providing protection for both of them from the results of their sin. So Abraham's discussion here reveals the heart of God. He's like, uh, all right, so what if there are 50 people in the city? Will you really sweep it away? And not spare the, the place for the sake of the 50 righteous. And he was like, far be it from you to do such a thing. To kill the righteous and the wicked. Treating righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do the right thing? Right? Verse 25 again makes it very clear. Abraham's confidence is in the goodness of God. The Lord says, if I find 50 people in that city, I will spare the whole place. Not just the 50. He's like, I'll spare the whole city for 50 people. No problem. If I have 50 people to partner with, I can execute a plan of rescue that will rescue the whole place. Remember, just with Noah, he had a plan to rescue the whole world. The whole world had 100 years to make a decision to be rescued. None of them chose to follow Noah. Now that's that's fine. That's fine. God's plan was to rescue. So then Abraham said, all right, now that I've been so bold to speak to the Lord as though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for, let's say, 45? And he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, what if only 40 are found there? For the sake of 40, I will not do it. May the Lord not be angry with me when I speak, but what if only 30 can be found there? I won't do it for 30. Now, 
That had been so bold, the city of the Lord. What if only 20 can be found there? For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Oh my goodness, this is such an amazing thing because if you look at it in the literary format of the Hebraic vocabulary, there is a pattern, there is a rhythm going on here. Abraham is showing humility and understanding that uh, you know God is, is obviously a superior being to him, but he's also showing boldness and, and confidence in God's character by setting up a pattern of God's uh, uh, love of rescue, of setting up a pattern of God's desire to, to bring goodness where sin, the cry of sin, has reached his ears. And it's the cry of the city. It's not the cry of the people. It's a literal cry of his creation who's looking at the coming destruction based on the choices that the people are making, and the city is crying out. The city, the frequency of heaven is is being heard from the from the actual creation of, of the land in and around Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's the, the creation saying, we know destruction is coming. We know this pattern of sin. We know that bad stuff's going to happen. Lord, can you send a rescue plan? And the Lord sends two of his angels and says, absolutely. And Abraham is setting up this pattern of the character of God where over and over and over again, God is willing to rescue not just those that are righteous, but everybody. Because God doesn't just see the righteous in their original identity. He sees everybody in creation from their original identity. He's like, I can rescue all of them. I can rescue all of them. And Abraham sets up this pattern, boom, boom, for 50, for 45, for 40, for 30, for 20. And he said, you know what? Don't be angry with me. Can I ask for one more? What if, what if only 10 could be found there? He said, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. There is no change in the pattern of God's response. There's nothing here that indicates that Abraham should have stopped asking the question. I think at some level, Abraham, Abraham thought, if my nephew Lot is, hasn't been able to influence 10 people to remain righteous, then I'm not going to stand in the way of, of the results of his choices. I know that sounds, that sounds really bad, but that's the only, ex, only explanation I can come up, come up with based on the rhythm of the, of the linguistics of this, of this passage right here. Everything within the linguistics indicates that God would have kept going till he said if there was one righteous. I mean, that's what, in essence, that's what he was able to do with Noah. Noah was the only one, only one that was called righteous. The rest of the family went along with Noah. They were probably of, of pure bloodlines, but, but we don't know what their characters were like. I mean, we kind of get a glimpse of it. We get a glimpse of Ham's character, but we also get a glimpse of Noah's character where he was plastered drunk, and it was, again, that was a regular thing for him. That's why the brothers or the sons were all called in from wherever they were living to say, hey, you need a, you know, we need an intervention here. Noah is hitting, hitting the product line a little heavy from the vineyard. So I don't know why Abraham stopped other than it's, I think either he was optimistic that Lot had at least influenced 10 people. He knew Lot had a couple children. He knew that he knew that they, uh, you know, they also had been married. So he's thinking, there's got to be 10 righteous. There's got to be. Lot has to have influenced at least 10 people. Just even, good grief, even his household servants, he should have influenced. Like, I, I don't know if he was optimistic or had an expectation that 10 people was a very reasonable, actually, you know, very, like, ridiculously reasonable uh, concept that his, his uh, nephew Lot had influenced at least 10 people to be righteous. And again, I don't think righteous means perfect. It means righteous means somebody, people who had a had a belief system that's centered on Yahweh, not on themselves, not on pride, not on the idols, not on not on uh, you know arrogance. I guess I said pride. That's arrogance and pride are the same thing. I know, I know. I actually probably can't spell arrogance. I can't spell pride. <laughs> so to me, it seems like two two completely different words. Sorry, I am a very poor speller, and uh, 
God bless anybody who has to uh, deal with it. It's one of the reasons why I've never gotten a book written, despite my storytelling abilities, is because, uh, one, I'd have to do everything via verbal documentation, and my verbal uh, cadence is so opposite, or so hard to actually put into proper grammar that it loses a lot of the rhythm, and it doesn't actually sound like me when you read me. That and anybody who edits what I've spoken into whatever, uh, a computer or a phone, they read it and they hear my voice, but then it's like, well, like that's that sentence is, you know, 47 words long. Like, how do we break that up and not lose the nuance of what Bob's trying to say? So, yeah, that's why I haven't written a book. Just in case all my fans out there are wondering, why doesn't he write a book? I've tried. I've tried. People have tried. And feel free. Take my podcast. See what you can translate into a book and, uh, you know, cut me in for a uh, percentage of some of some some sort. And we can talk later. All right. On with the show. Enough self-promotion, Bob. You're here talking about arrogance and pride, and then you promote yourself. <laughs> Ooh, look, the essence of irony. As opposed to wrinkly. Sorry, that was bad. All right. Here we go. Bob just fell over in his chair. He's just groaning. Dad jokes are the worst. Chapter 19. Where are we at? Okay, yeah, we're 25 minutes in. We're good. Chapter 19. The two angels arrive at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet there, spend the night, and go your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him to enter his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. All right. Angels arrive. Lot is in a place of influence, a place of honor. He's seated at the gate. Now, he clearly has a house in the city. He's considered, in essence, an elder of the city. He's given a place of prominence to continue to do business in and around the city. Like, this is where all the major trades are, are uh, hammered out. When, when Lot lived out in the plains around, the, around these cities, he could work out a trade deal, but he would have to bring it into the city and then, like, in essence, get it, get it signed by the, the local elders. And they might want a percentage or tax, or they might want to rework it a little bit so that, you know, so that at some point they give themselves some credit for working out these trade deals with Lot. But eventually, Lot's influence and wealth, probably after his return from, from being captured, his influence and wealth puts him in the in a place of influence. So he, in essence, could write his own deals. And they were saying, we trust you to also write deals that are beneficial for the city when you're out here because we are all about the city. The, the, uh, the pride and selfishness of Sodom and Gomorrah is really what the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is. I know that, that homosexuality gets the, uh, the brunt of what Sodom and, Sodom and Gomorrah's sin was. But, but homosexuality is not, is not the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. It is the, it is the sense of greed. It's the sense of pride. It's a sense of domination and power and control and fear and manipulation. This is, this is the sin of the city. Were there homosexuals in the city? Sure. Why, yeah, why not? But we'll get into why it gets a bad rap. But I just want to get, put that in your little brain now while, while we're talking. just want to put that seed in your ear while we're talking. So Lot is in a place of influence and honor, and Lot senses a holy shift when the angels arrive. There's a, be a, you, you need to be a holy shifter. When the angels, when the angels arrive, there is a shift. There's a holy shift that occurs. What is it? It's the idea that, that these characters carry with them a culture of heaven. It's the culture of joy and peace and love and, and uh, kindness and hospitality. 
These are the you know these are the the things that that heaven is, and they carry it. And when they arrive here, it's like, you know, it's like somebody popping off a uh, you know a, a halogen or no halogen's not the right word LED light light bulb uh, flashlight in the middle of a dark room. Like boom, Lot knows exactly who's here. Lot recognizes this atmosphere immediately. He's like, oh man, that is of God right there. And they are in a, they are not, mm, they are not the ones that we know. No, I need to, I need to get a hold of these two strangers right now. Because if they get involved in this city, oh, oh, this is bad. This is really going to be bad. This city is the exact opposite of everything my uncle taught me. And I know these, I know the atmosphere of these two people. So he senses this holy shift that happens when the angels arrive. And there's a sense, as some would say, when uh, in, the, in that nuance of the word arrived at Sodom, that, that it was a, like it was a suddenly, like they didn't come walking in over the hill from miles away, slowly working their way to the city, but they literally like popped on the scene. Right in the you know right in the line of people heading into the city and 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 Lot immediately was like oh 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 yeah and he pops up from his seat and he runs to these two strangers which of course made all the other elders look because you see one of the things that was true about the rules of Sodom and Gomorrah was you weren't allowed you weren't allowed to come in the city unless you had wealth if you couldn't bring something of value to the city you couldn't be there. So the elders were always looking for the next opportunity for the city, the next place to make money, the next place to have influence. And, and the fact that these two kind of showed up and Lot immediately runs out of his chair, runs down the little the, the path, the roadway, whatever, and he bows down to them. And he says, uh, please come to my house. You can wash your feet, you can spend the night and go on your way early in the morning. He, he offers them, uh, you know, hospitality right away, which again was not the way of the city. The city was, if you can't provide for yourself, who are, we are not going to provide for you. You need to show us that you have resources or you can't be here. That was the pattern of the city. That was the rhythm of the city. And so Lot insisted that they come. Please, it, there's, there's a lot of... Uh, angst, uh, a lot of intensity in the words that he's using. And they're like, no, we're going to spend the night in the square. Now he knows that that's illegal. He knows that that's illegal. So he keeps pressing them. He insists so strongly that they finally did go with him and enter his house. And it's like, I, I picture when Lot finally gets him there and he's kind of He's kind of looking both ways and he's, you know, waving at people like, hey, hey. And everybody knew Lot because he was the foreigner. He was a stranger. He came from Syria. He came down from Canaan. He has a rich uncle who rescued it. Like everybody knows him. They know his story, but he doesn't look like them. He's not considered one of them. But he, he clearly has a place of influence and, and authority. But they still look down on him. So he's waving and smiling and everybody's looking at him going, okay, but who are these strangers? What, why, why is he making such a big deal about these two guys who showed up? Clearly Lot knows these guys. Are they from Nimrod? Are they make, Is he making some sort of side deal with them? Are they incredibly wealthy? Is he doing this you know, in order to destroy us? Is he making an alliance with another kingdom? Like there's all kinds of, of suspicion Suspicion always comes around in an atmosphere of fear and control. If you are, if you run a, a, a control, if you run a control and fear-based government, whether it's in your family, in your business, in your church, in your city, in your country, if you run a fear-based government, then you are always looking for the for something bad to happen. And when something goes a little unusual, you get suspicious. Because you think they're they're out to get me. They're out to get me. I better get them first. I better get them first. So the angels show up at Lot's house. Take his hospitality. He knows that they're they're of, of God. Like he probably hasn't put it all together, but he knows they're of God. 
He shuts the door when they enter his house, probably the courtyard, you know, shuts the courtyard door and he starts to smile. He gets them in their house and he shuts the door again. He's like, oh, awesome. Now we'll make dinner. That'll take several hours. Uh, then it'll be dark. They can spend the night. And tomorrow we can sort this whole thing out because I'm probably got some explaining to do. So it says that, uh, you know, he baked the bread and they ate. And that's more than just bread. They ate the whole meal. They had a, you know, I'm sure a, a sumptuous meal. And before they had gone to bed, it says all the men from every part of the city, both young and old, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot. Where are the men that came with you tonight? Bring them out so we can have sex with them. Now, this is where Sodom gets that overwhelming reputation that this is all about homosexuality. It is not. Right? I mean, think about this. The men of the city means that all the leaders from all around the city, every family clan, every elder, they come out after dinner. They come out in the in the dark of, you know, of the early evening. And they say, "You need to send these guys out cuz we need to put them in their place." They showed up without any money. They showed up without any flocks. We we did some, uh, you know, some investigation after you ran off with them. They don't have any carts anywhere. They don't have any tents anywhere. They don't have any people, any gold. They're, they're just strangers with no resources. You don't come into Sodom and Gomorrah with no resources. And you definitely don't get to stay in one of our elders' houses. So send them out here because we want to rape them. Now, why do people rape? This rape is what? Rape is all about domination. It's all about control. It's all about emotionally crushing somebody, of showing your dominance. That's what they want to do to these men. This has nothing to do with them promoting homosexuality. They're saying, we want to dominate these guys. We want to humiliate these guys. We want to show our domination over these guys. You don't come into our city and dictate to us what's going on. We dictate to you. And Lot, you're a foreigner. And they press in. Now Lot pleads with them. He pleads with them, what? On the grounds, not of homosexual, of, you know, the homosexual angle. He pleads with them on the grounds of hospitality. Lot went outside. He met with them and he shut the door behind him. He's like, okay, listen, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters. They're virgins. Uh, let me bring them out to you. You can do whatever you want with them, but don't do anything with these men for they have come under the protection of my roof. That's the idea of hospitality. They have come under my roof. I, it is my job now to protect them to keep them from being raped and dominated and controlled. I, I have an obligation to do this. They were like, what? Get out of our way. You came here as a foreigner. Now you want to you want to play the judge? You want to play the judge? We'll treat you even worse. You think you can you can throw out this quote law of hospitality that it's you know under your roof, they're under your protection? No, Lot, that is, and they probably swore. They're like, we're, we don't, we're not giving into that. No, we control what goes on in the city. You're a foreigner. We gave you a place at the table. You're taking advantage of our kindness. We are going to crush you. We'll make you, we'll make it worse for you. Them, we're just going to rape and kick out of the city. You, you, we're going to crush everything about you. It'll be far worse for you if you don't send them out here. And then other people are like, well, he offered his daughters. How horrible. Listen, he offered his daughters as a business deal. That's why he says, do whatever it is you want with them. They're virgins. Sell them off to whoever it is you want to sell them off to as wives. Uh, make whatever trade deals you want to make. Like he's offering them an opportunity to enrich themselves, which is what they were after, which is why they didn't want poor people living in Sodom. They wanted to rape these guys and kick them out of the city because they didn't bring any wealth into the city. And Lot is offering them wealth. He's saying, listen, my daughters are connected to all the things that I own. Do with them what you want. Sell them, uh, marry them, uh, do whatever they want. This was not about sex. This was about power and control and dominance. And he's offering his daughters as an opportunity for them to do that. And that negotiation ended 
quickly and badly. And they kept pressing in. And they kept pressuring Lot. It kept getting louder. He kept like, well, I'm sure when he first started, everybody quieted down, listened to him. And then they, the first few started responding. And soon everybody just got angry and vile again. And by the time the negotiations had completely failed, a hand comes through the door and pulls them in. That was one of the angels. And they stuck, you know, they, they shut the door. Lot is, I'm sure, uh, just exasperated. He's, he's living in fear. Nothing he offered helped. All of his political, politi- political, all of his political cards were played. They didn't accept any of them. He lost everything. He didn't know where, where, you know, where he was going to be at the end of the night. Because there was no way his house was a fortress. There was no way he was going to keep these guys from getting in and doing whatever it is they wanted to do. And the angel struck the men who were at the door, young and old, with blindness, so they could not find the door. And that idea of blindness is more than just that they couldn't see, because obviously blind people can find a door. This was just, they were completely disoriented. And I would I would throw this out to you. They didn't strike them dead because they didn't come there to kill people. They struck them with blindness because they wanted them to feel the the, the darkness of their actual position. Remember the question that Adam was asked by God, where are you? And it carried with it far more than just a location. It was like, do you know how far you've fallen? Do you like it there? Do you want out of there? Would you like to be rescued? This is the invitation of blindness that the angels struck the men with. They struck them with an opportunity for repentance. They struck them with an opportunity to, to feel the lostness of their, of their position and be able to respond accordingly to the rescue of God, to the goodness of God. That's all they had to do. They could have just started crying out from that moment and saying, whoa, we're really sorry. We've made some bad choices. We've set up some pretty bad, um, uh, uh, not conditions, what do I want? cultural expectations of our city, the way we treat foreigners and the way we treat guests. Maybe we should listen to whoever's in Lot's house. But they didn't. And the rest of the story we will talk about next week on The Epic Narrative. Don't go anywhere. We've got Bob Thoughts. Well, it's time again, once again, once again, once again, it's time. It's time for my thoughts. I know. I ended that last one with that, you know, as you know, I just gave this great big ending to the epic narrative. Sometimes when you do, you know, these sort of stories where they just go on and on and on, sometimes you're, you're, you you know, you just need to, you just need to eject some enthusiasm into the fact that <clears throat> some of you guys have been on this journey for a long time. Like, a, a, you know, you're, you're years. Well, okay, maybe not years yet, right? We're only season two. But it's been a long time. And I do uh, always uh, appreciate those of you that are sticking with it. And I appreciate those of you that binge it and just listen to, you know, an entire season over several months. And uh, hopefully season two will be done. Uh, you know, well, not done shortly because we got a lot to go in Genesis. But then I am working on season three. And, and man, we're just going to keep right on going. It's, it's so, God is so good. Can I just say that again? God is so good. God is so good. And, man, he is so timely in his, we'll call it revelation and wisdom, right? I mean, I know a lot of you know that just on, your, on our own personal level, right? We're just when we need it, he's, he, quote, seems to come through. I mean, he's always been there. His goodness is always there, and it's just waiting for us. So it seems like. He just showed up, but the reality is his goodness was always waiting for us, and there it was again this week. Um, something I had, I was just like, Lord, I, I don't know what to do with this. In, in Exodus, uh, which is season three, <clears throat> and it you know has to do with the law, and man, it just looks, oh man, it looks bad. God God does, he, he doesn't look good. He looks like he wants to kill somebody. And then... Out of nowhere, like I run into, okay, didn't run into him, but 
I knew Bill Vanderbush was going to be in the same area that we were camping. And if you don't know Bill Vanderbush, I highly recommend that you listen to him. He's got a great podcast called uh, Radical Grace. I think that's what it's, yeah. Um, and then and then he's also written a ton of books and he has a lot of online teaching. He's a he's a he's a amazing teacher. So I highly recommend him. But he just happened to be in the same area where we were camping. So this whole week we've kind of been like groupies. Uh, hanging out, uh, going to his meetings at night. He, he has spent some time with us. God bless him. Him and his wife uh, were gracious. And even though he's, he knows a ton of people in this area of the country because this is where his, his family was located for years. And his dad preached for years, was an amazing evangelist, huge revivals, that sort of thing in, in this area of Minnesota and South Dakota. Um. He found time to spend time with us. And man, again, just stuff that he just kind of says. And I'm like, wow, that's exactly what I need for for my pod, like my podcast. And it's not like a prideful thing. Like, hey, it's my podcast. It's just, I know that God's working through this revelation with me. He wants me to, you know, pursue his goodness and to release it as best I can. And I know that, you know, these podcasts can sit on the web and the right people find them and the right people listen to them. And I know that those that have listened to it in a lot of ways have been challenged and some have completely uh, shifted the way they've seen certain, certain uh, stories now because they never saw God being good in those stories. And now it's clear as day. So God is awesome. And those are some of my, my thoughts (laughs) today. I don't know if, if uh, you know, if, if you guys that are listening, especially in real time, if you've ever considered that the, quote, sin of Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't actually homosexuality, that it was the arrogance of fear, pride, control, uh, abuse of people, which is, of course, what arrogance does, um, and even those laws that they had in place that said, if you don't, if you, no one is allowed in the city unless you're rich. No one's allowed to sleep on the streets. Uh, no homelessness is allowed here. And if, if you are in the city without wealth, if you are trying to sleep on the streets, by law, we can abuse you and th- literally throw you over the wall and see if you, you know, if you survive, great. If not, well, that's on your, you know, that's your problem. It's, it's amazing. And rape was one of those ways that they would um, make sure the homeless and the poor never came back. So then when, you know, when, when, you, when you take that law of Sodom and Gomorrah and you, and you put it into the circle of the story of Lot with these angels, you understand what's going on outside the door. Lot is trying to defile and in their opinion, the, the culture of wealth and arrogance that they have, they have meticulously protected. And this outsider that they've now allowed, not only at their city gate, but now they've allowed him in the city because of his wealth and his influence and his connection. And of course, his uh, uncle who came down and saved the city. Like there was all kinds of ways that Lot benefited from his connection to Abraham and Abraham's influence in the, in the uh, region. They look at this and they're like, no, like we're, you need to be taught a lesson as well. You can't just re- rewrite the rules. And, and it was intense. It was intense. And I'm sure Lot was incredibly exasperated because part of what's happening when these angels are, are in his home and the elders are outside the home and there's all kinds of lunacy going on. He's realizing how far he's fallen. He's realizing all the things that he's exposed him and his family to. I, I, there's an old saying. I honestly, I, I don't know if it's that great of a saying. I'm giving it to you because it's, it uh, always kind of, it's always been a part of my little paradigm. And I, I picked it up, I remember in, in Sunday school in probably the fourth or fifth grade where it says, well, you enter into sin one by one, you pay for two by two. And, and I, I, I don't even know if that's the exact quote, but the concept was you, you do a sin and you think, you think, you know what the basic price might be and you think it's going to be worth it. 
But sin always doubles down, and the price for sin is always way more than you expect. And that's, that's what I think is happening to Lot. He's realizing in this moment, as he gets pulled back into the house, he's realizing, wow, I have come a lot further down this road than I thought I had. I now realize, you know, I thought I had some control. I thought I had some influence. I thought I could, I could uh, take care of this in my own way, and he couldn't. And, and he even went as far as, like I said, to trade his daughters for whatever it is they want. And, other, and that would mean access to his wealth and his family and his covenants and his trade routes and his <clears throat> uh, merchants, etc. And the men, the elders of, of Sodom were like, no, that's not the point. We want those men. We want to do to them what we want to do to them. And uh, I think, you know, in, in a lot of ways, Lot at that point knew I've got to get out of here, but he probably also realized I've lost years of my life, years of my life thinking I was, you know, making a difference or that I had some influence on, on this culture and he doesn't, that didn't. Uh, I think a lot of Christians run into that too, you know. A lot of Christians think that they are influencing the culture that they're a part of. And then when push comes to shove and there's a moment of, of you know, uh, of like this where, where they really have to step up and they, are, they, they decide to step up and they decide to step into, you know, their, their identity as, as a child of God. <clears throat> and they're immediately rejected and shut down as though they, they literally have no influence whatsoever. I think Lot's in that moment, and I think a lot of Christians have been in that moment where it's like, wait, I, I thought we were friends. I thought, you know, you uh, listened to me, that you honored me, that, they, you know, that I had some uh, opportunity here to have a discussion. And they were like, no, no discussion. You, you are not a part of us, and you never have been. That's a harsh reality for Lot, and it's a harsh rea- reality for a lot of Christians. But we will continue the story next week, as you know. And I will give you more thoughts at that point as well. Have yourself a good day, everyone. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys.